take your Bibles out today and turn with me to the book of Galatians, continuing our series in the book of Galatians today. And I want you to turn with me to chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. It's Galatians chapter 4, looking at verses 21 through 31, continuing a series we began several months ago called Gospel Freedom for Godly Living. Today I want to speak to you on the topic of who is your spiritual mother? Who is your spiritual mother? So once you've found your place there, I'd like to invite you to stand with me if you are able as we honor the reading of God's word as the sole authority of our truth and what we aim to live by. Beginning in verse 21, the apostle Paul writes, tell me you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are the children of promise. But just as that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. The Word of God. You may be seated. Such a wonderful example. Children of promise is what the Apostle Paul tells us that we are in Christ Jesus. You know, it's often been said that a picture is worth a thousand words. And as most of us would agree, it's much easier to understand something when we can look at it, when we can visualize it, when we can see it with our own eyes. This is why any time that you buy something from a manufacturer that needs to be put together, they often give you a diagram to go along with the written instructions for how to do it. Because it's much easier to do something when you can see it or to understand it when you can look at it. And that's the same when it comes to biblical doctrine. You see, when Jesus preached, especially when he preached about the doctrines such as the gospel and salvation, he often used a lot of illustrations and word pictures. He used analogies, and there were parables and stories that he would use to go along with what he was teaching so that in most cases it would make it easier for us to understand what he was trying to communicate. For example, when Jesus was talking about our earthly witness as believers... He compared us as the church as like a city on a hill that was shining brightly for everyone to come to who needed relief. When Jesus talked about the importance of prayer, he told us about a persistent widow who who would go to a judge over and over again until her request was granted. In the sense, we should continue to go to the Father in prayer. When Jesus talked about heaven, he talked about a great wedding feast where there would be a celebration and the bride and the, the bridegroom and the, and the, which would be like the church and Jesus Christ. It would be a wonderful occasion to be at when we're finally in heaven. When he's talking about God's gracious pursuit of sinners, 
He gives us parables and stories like the one of the lost coin and the, the man who's looking for the lost sheep and then finally the man who's looking for his lost son to talk about God aggressively going after those who are out of his will, wanting to bring them to the faith. Jesus talked about the kingdom of God as being like seed that is thrown out and increases to a large harvest that in the end that God, through the seed of the gospel, is going to bring all the nations to himself, those who are of faith. Jesus used a lot of illustrations and word pictures when it came to understanding things. Now, we do know that there were times that the Lord Jesus used illustrations and parables in order to confuse people as a form of judgment. He said in the parable of the sower that he he wanted to actually say this because the Pharisees were so hard-hearted, he didn't want them to understand it was a form of judgment against them. But on the other hand, there were many other times when Jesus spoke in parables so that we would all get it. We would all understand the truth in a very important way. You know, this is why there's so many pastors today when they preach, they often use stories and illustrations because the truth is important and it's, and it's very important to understand. So we, we use things that all of us can relate to in order to express the truth. And I can tell you that after you hear a sermon, if all you can remember was the story the pastor preached, you've missed the point. Or perhaps the pastor didn't do a good job of explaining the truth behind the story. But the story is not what's important. It's the truth that comes from it. Now, like Christ and others, at this point in Paul's letter to the Galatians, he decides through the Holy Spirit's inspiration to use an illustration to further explain the truth of the gospel. Paul really wants these Galatians and all of us to get it. He wants us to understand the truth of the gospel so that we will not make any mistakes and follow anyone leading us in the wrong direction. Now, at this point, all of us know that the Galatians had been led by false teachers. After they were saved, they had false teachers who came in, telling them a gospel, a false gospel of works, and works righteousness, and trying to be good enough to please God for your salvation, which is opposite the gospel of grace and faith through Christ. And Paul was so burdened by these believers who were straying in the wrong direction that in the last part of the the verses last week, he said that he was just perplexed about them, meaning that he was at his wit's end. He couldn't understand how they would follow such a false gospel. And up until this point in Galatians, Paul has been teaching the true gospel, and he's used a lot of different methods. He's used his personal testimony. He's used arguments from Scripture. He's used logical arguments and theological arguments to try to persuade people to the truth. He's made a personal pleas to try to draw people back away from what is false. But we get to this point in the letter, the end of the fourth chapter, when Paul, through the Holy Spirit, turns to an illustration, or what he calls allegory, to help us to see the truth once again. You know, as we read through the Gospels, Jesus used various illustrations and analogies to describe the difference between those who were saved and those who were lost. Jesus taught a lot of things, but there were many times that he would give us a specific analogy or illustration to draw a contrast between those who were saved and those who were lost. For example, Jesus says in the end, there will only be two types of people. You either have the sheep who follow the shepherd or the goats who are cast out. In the end, you will have those who came through the narrow gate or the narrow entrance in order to to, to get into heaven through Christ. Or you will have those who walk through the wide gate, the wide entrance that leads to destruction. Jesus said those who are saved are like those who built a house on the rock, which is a firm foundation in Christ. 
Those who are lost are like those who built their house on the sand, which can be easily washed away in the world. Jesus said that those who are saved are like a tree that will bear good fruit, that will be healthy, that will be fruitful in righteousness. Those who are lost will be like a tree that is dead, that bears bad fruit, that is not healthy, not full of righteousness. Jesus gives us a lot of illustrations to show us the difference between the saved and the lost. But the Apostle Paul here in Galatians gives us an example or an illustration or an analogy that Jesus did not use. It's something that's completely new to us as believers when we read this. He talks about salvation in terms of motherhood, terms of who is your spiritual mother. He talks about salvation being like two mothers. One mother leads to God and righteousness. The other mother leads to destruction. He says that in the end, there will only be two types of people. Those who are born spiritually to Sarah, Abraham's wife. In other words, those who are born according to God's will, according to his plan, by his grace. And then there will be those born to Sarah's slave, Hagar, representing those who are born under the law, under works righteousness, who are enslaved to sin and will result in death. And he says that only those who are born spiritually to Sarah will have eternal life. Those born to Hagar will receive eternal destruction. So as we think about this analogy that Paul uses to help us understand the truth, the greatest question that you could ask yourself today is who is your spiritual mother? Are you born to Sarah under God's grace? Or are you born to Hagar in a means of slavery, spiritual slavery that is? Who is your spiritual mother? What is the true gospel? What is your eternal destiny? Those are the greatest questions that you could ever ask yourself. Well, in this passage, Paul wants us to understand what the true gospel is. He wants us to understand where it comes from and how we can receive it, and then what life will be like for us on earth after we have, after we have trusted in Christ. So today, I want us to look at three important elements for understanding and believing the gospel so that we don't miss it, that we understand this life-changing truth which is so critical for eternal life. Three elements. Well, the first element we see is a pure application of God's Word. A pure application of God's Word. You know, the only way that we can ever understand the truth about salvation is to make sure that we understand the Scriptures correctly. If we go through all the Bible and we fail to get it right, then it will be destructive for us in the end. If we don't believe the right things, we can be sure that we will not get into heaven. And if you get scripture wrong and you get salvation wrong, then there's a lot of consequences to pay, not just in this life, but in the life ahead. So we must have a pure understanding of God's word when it comes to salvation. And this is where the apostle Paul begins. Notice here what he says in verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Paul begins in this verse with a play on words. He says here that if you really want to live under the law, then it starts with you understanding what the law is all about. You see, the law is often used to describe the entire Old Testament. 
But most, most of the time, it was used to describe the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. This is what we call the Pentateuch, or Jewish people call the Torah, what we refer to as the books of Moses or the law of Moses. This records everything that God did in the beginning when he called Israel to be a nation. And you remember that the highlight from those books is when God met Moses on Mount Sinai to make a covenant between him and his people And he gave him the law, the Ten Commandments. And then those Ten Commandments were divided and they were were, uh, applied in many different ways. There was a lot of ceremonial laws. There were civil laws. There were other moral laws. So you have this large collection of around 600 or so laws, individual laws that we see in these books. And you see the false teachers were saying that if you really want to be saved... You need to look at the law and do everything it says, and hopefully if you do enough of it, if you are good enough for God, you will earn enough spiritual credit with him where he will save you in the end. That was their theology. It was a theology of works righteousness. If you can be good enough for God, then God will save you in the end. So try your hardest, and hopefully you will make it. And that's what the Galatians were believing. Now, they'd been saved by grace. But these false teachers were telling them, no, it's not about grace, it's really about your works. Don't listen to what Paul was saying. Paul says, hey, if you really want to be saved by the law, at least study it and understand what the law really says. There's nowhere in the law that ever said you were to be saved by it. In fact, the law was to show you that you couldn't save yourself. I mean, of course, it shows you what God wants from your life and you should try to obey God. But when it comes to salvation... God's law was to really show you that you don't measure up, that you've never got it, that you just don't have it. You don't have enough to please God. And that's why the law should point you in your frustration to look to the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came into this world. He did everything the law said in perfection. He did what God told you to do, but you couldn't. So that if you place your faith in him, then you will get credit as if you did everything in the law, and then you will be saved. That's the message of the gospel. And Paul wanted them to understand that this Christ has been fulfilled all through the Old Testament. There's prophecies that have been fulfilled about him, and everything points to him. That's how you should really understand the law. You see, these Galatians were getting on the wrong path because the false teachers were on the wrong path as they misunderstood and misapplied what the Scriptures were saying. And you know, if we're we're not careful as believers... We can also get on the wrong path if we don't understand and apply what the scriptures are really saying. If we don't take time to understand what the Bible says, read it and study it and get it right, then we are going to be up for a lot of consequences in our lives. And if you're an unbeliever today and you don't understand what the scripture teaches about the gospel, then you will remain lost in your sins. That is the dangers of getting it wrong. And that's what we see happening so many so many places in our culture today. You know, there are countless people today in in cults and false religions that they've simply gotten it wrong. They, They use the Bible to support what they teach, but they're not using it in the right way. Just a few days ago, Emily and I had um, a couple of, of people from the Jehovah's Witness faith come by our house and they came by. We were very friendly to them. We talked, actually, Emily talked with them. I wasn't there at the moment, but she received their literature, and I began to look at it later when I, was, um, when I was at home, and I was noticing that on the front of their literature, they were talking about the destruction that was coming to the world in the end. Many of you have seen this before. This is one of the, the main things they talk about. 
The worldwide destruction that is coming by God or Jehovah's judgment in the end. And of course, that's a very true reality when it comes to, the, when it comes to Scripture. The Bible teaches there is going to be a judgment where God will destroy the earth and there will be a new heavens and a new earth and everyone that's not in Him will, will perish. We know those things to be true. But as I found an article inside their uh, Watchtower magazine, it was titled, Many Will Survive in the End, You Can Too. And it was trying to explain how you could be a survivor of all of this judgment in the end. And as I read this short article, when it finally got to the way that you could survive, it said this, Really, our survival involves being devoted to Jehovah God and learning about the kind of conduct and deeds that please Him. Our survival, in other words, is all about how much we do for God and learning about all that God requires of us in order to please Him. That's how you can survive in the end. And the dangerous thing, besides that being a false teaching that's against the gospel, is that they had quoted Zephaniah 2.3 and 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10-12. through 12. They used Scripture to back up this claim that you have to do enough works in order to survive the coming judgment in the end a false gospel that's not what scripture teaches is the path of salvation nowhere in their literature do they say anything about the gospel or about faith in christ or about the person and work of christ or about god's grace it was never mentioned should be a dead giveaway it's a false gospel but there are so many people who are building their theology on the scriptures, but they've gotten the scriptures wrong. They haven't understood it completely. They're trying to, to be saved by the law, but they don't even know what the law really teaches. That's what the Apostle Paul was trying to get across. So that's why it's so important for us to study scripture. Some people ask me, Pastor, why do I need to spend countless hours studying the Bible? Well, because your life depends on it. If you don't get it right, you will not get it right in the end when it comes to eternal life. You need to know what the gospel is, and it comes through the study and correct application of Scripture. And it's not only just for the gospel, but it's for Christian living, for how we operate as a church, for how we witness and share our faith. If we want to know what God wants from us, we have to read and study His Word correctly. It's so discouraging to see the statistics today about how little Christians read their Bibles and study them. But I want to submit to you, it's not just about reading through the Bible, but it's about understanding it and getting it right. That's where we have to be as believers. Our lives, our spiritual lives, depend on it. And it would be like what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. He said, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We need to be believers who rightly handle the word of truth living our lives under god's grace of the gospel but also obeying what he's called us to do as people who are in his family that's what we need to do so if we want to be in the will of god when it comes to the gospel it begins with a pure understanding and application of god's word that's what we need to strive to do well there's a second element i want to share with you today and it's a personal acceptance of God's grace a personal acceptance of God's grace it's important that we get the gospel right but then we need to apply it to our lives through God's grace you see because the false teachers had misunderstood and misapplied God's word Paul wants to teach the Galatians the truth about salvation he wants them to see what salvation is all about and not to turn back to what these false teachers are saying 
So how does Paul address them about the truth of salvation? Well, he could go back to the law of Moses in the book of Exodus and so forth and explain what it says compared to what the false teachers are saying about the law. But Paul goes back even further to the book of Genesis. He goes back to a very familiar story that we see in Genesis chapter 16 about the scandal, if you will, that happened between Abraham and his wife Sarah and her slave Hagar. This is a story that we have seen throughout Scripture in different places, but it's a story that really rings true when it comes to the gospel. And I want you to see what Paul says about this in, chapter, in verse 22 and 23. He says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, in order to set up this illustration or this analogy that Paul is going to use, this allegory as he calls it, he gives us a little historical background first to show us where he is heading. Now, from Genesis chapters 12 through 15, many of us who study those chapters know that this is where God is promising Abraham that he is going to make him the father of many nations. And the world, the whole world is going to be blessed through him and his offspring. Now, Abraham realizes that for that to be true, that he does need an offspring. He needs a son, someone who will carry on his line. But when God tells Abraham this, he is already 86 years old, and his wife Sarah is 76. But in good faith, they wait a few years to see what God is going to do. Well, as it turns out, their faith runs out. In a hopeless and and, and despairing way, desperate way rather, Sarah decides that God is not going to come through on his promise. So she tells Abraham, I just want you to go ahead and conceive a child through my slave woman, Hagar, and then we will have our son. Now, this was not God's will to happen. God did not desire this to be the way that they would have a child. But as it turns out, God allowed them to get into this, to to go through the consequences and ultimately to accomplish something down the road. So Abraham successfully conceived a child through the slave woman, Hagar, and she named him Ishmael. And then several more years went by when Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90, and God told him that I am going to supernaturally bless you with a child. So they believed, and after that, we know that Sarah conceived, and she had a child through the will of God, and they called his name Isaac. Now, Paul draws a contrast between these two sons, a very important contrast. He says that Ishmael was the son of the slave and was born according to the flesh. He says that Isaac was the son of the free woman and was born through the promise. Now, while both of these children were born naturally in the biological sense, when it comes to the things of Scripture and the spiritual things, We know that Ishmael represents a child that was born out of the will of God, a child that was born according to the flesh. In other words, in a natural way that was not supernatural. Anytime that we see the the word flesh used in the Bible, oftentimes it indicates something that is against the work of the Spirit of God. So Ishmael was born in a way that was the will of man, not the will of God. But Isaac, on the other hand, it says, was born through promise. This means that his birth was supernatural. This was something that God did, something that was according to his will that happened. It was the promise that God made to Abraham and Sarah. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11, it says, By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, 
even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. So when you back up and look at this, you have two children that were born in two different ways. One born according to human will in the flesh, one born according to God's will through the promise. One represents human effort, one represents God's effort. And Paul is showing that this is a contrast that is worth noting. Now, notice what he says in verse 24. Now, this, being the story, may be interpreted allegorically. Now, Paul says that this biblical account, which really did happen, can be interpreted in a way that shows us a spiritual truth. Now, the word allegory here is not taken to be the literal sense of allegory because allegory can be dangerous when used in the wrong way. A lot of times people believe the wrong things when they allegorize something from Scripture. But Paul doesn't really mean it this way. He means an illustration or an example or some kind of analogy. You see, these two women, Sarah and Hagar, serve as two types or examples of the way to approach God in salvation. And listen what he says here about these two women in verse 24. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. Now, as you can see, there are a lot of elements happening in this allegory illustration. There's a lot of symbolism here. So how do we make any sense of it? Well, Hagar represents Mount Sinai. You know that Mount Sinai was the place that God met with Moses to give him the law, to make the covenant with Israel, the covenant of works. It's a place where the law was given. So Mount Sinai represents the law, and and Hagar here represents all those who are trying to earn their salvation by keeping the law. Because Hagar was a slave, naturally any of her offspring would also be slaves along with her. Therefore, her children, those who are trying to keep the law for salvation, in essence, are spiritual slaves. They're trying to do all they can to please God, but they will never get anywhere, and it is an enslaving type of thing to be in. It doesn't lead anywhere. It's like they're behind spiritual bars, unable to escape through their own efforts. It's interesting here that Paul describes Mount Sinai as being in Arabia, because if you know anything about biblical geography, Arabia is not where the promised land is. So what Paul is saying is that all those who are children of Hagar are outside of the promised land. They're not to be included with the people of God. It's interesting also that he says that Hagar corresponds to the present Jerusalem, which is the Jerusalem of the Apostle Paul's day. Now, the reason that she corresponds to the present Jerusalem is because in Jerusalem is where all these false teachers were from, and it's where a lot of the Jews were still there teaching this False gospel of works righteousness, the one that doesn't need Christ in order to be saved. It was a place with Jews who ignored the grace of God and rejected Christ, just like these false teachers. So you may say, well, what does all of this mean? What is Paul trying to show us? Well, Hagar represents everyone in the world who is outside of the will of God, still living in spiritual slavery to sin and death. All of her descendants in this metaphorical, allegorical sense are all those who are still trying to earn their salvation when it comes to pleasing God. That's who the children of Hagar are. These are the people who are legalistic. They're self-reliant. 
They're oftentimes religious enthusiasts. They're trying to do all of these things, hoping to get credit with God in order to be saved. But the problem is, is that there is nothing that anyone can do personally in order to please God enough to save them. That's what spiritual slavery is. It's like we've used before the example of a treadmill. It's like a person who runs and runs and runs with all the effort they can run toward God, but they never get there. And they eventually fall off and die. That is what spiritual slavery is like. And you know, there's many people throughout the world today who are enslaved to such practices, but there could be people even inside the church. Because there may be people among us who sense that their worthiness to God and their acceptance into heaven is all based on how much they do. If I read my Bible enough, if I pray enough, if I give enough offering, if I go on enough mission trips, if I serve enough in the church, if I'm in attendance enough, then God will look down upon me with a big smile on his face. And he will say, well done, you've accomplished your own salvation. But that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that salvation is only accomplished through the Lord Jesus Christ who did do enough to please God. But for all those who are still trying to earn their own salvation, earn their way to heaven by their own goodness, they will be like Hagar, a slave who has no inheritance. That is the message that Paul is trying to show us. But what's the other side of the contrast? Well, look at verse 26. He says, But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Now, Paul doesn't go into as much detail here, but there is a contrast because he uses the word but. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. You see, the Jerusalem above is opposed to the earthly Jerusalem, or what Paul says is the present Jerusalem. The Jerusalem above is the the Jerusalem that's located in heaven, in the heavenly realms where Christ rules and reigns from. That's what Paul is talking about. And he says here that if we are a part of this Jerusalem, then she is our mother, the free woman who is Sarah, the woman who finally conceived according to God's promise. You see, the the, the heavenly Jerusalem represents the kingdom of God. It's the people that God has saved according to his eternal plan and according to his grace. It's not the people who were trying to please God through their works, but it's the people that God saved through his grace. And just like God supernaturally born Isaac to Sarah and Abraham, only the people in Sarah's spiritual family are those who have been supernaturally born again into the family of God. Isn't this what Jesus says when he's talking to Nicodemus? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, only those who are born again will inherit the kingdom of God. Some translations say those who are born from above, those who have been born of heaven will have salvation. He's talking about the supernatural work of God in the sinner's life that delivers them out of this slavery that they're in to sin and death and brings them into his kingdom through their faith in Christ. That's what Paul is talking about here. And when you say that Sarah is your spiritual mother, you are saying that I am the line of God's grace I've trusted in Christ. I'm I'm a believer. All my hope rests in him, not in myself. I've been born again from above. This is why Paul says in Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship as believers, he says, is in heaven. We are already citizens of heaven if we are in Christ, not citizens of the world. So the only way to experience true salvation is by becoming one of Sarah's spiritual children, those who have been born again in Christ, born again from heaven. This is simply through God's grace and faith alone. 
It's not through our works as, we, as if we could ever achieve it. It's only through God's grace and faith. You know, today, if you're trusting in your works, your family heritage, your, your church membership, if you're trusting in your, in your baptism, if you're trusting in how many times you've helped someone, you're going to be sadly disappointed one day when, you, when God will not accept you into heaven. Because no matter how much good you've done in the earth, it never covers for all the bad that you've done, which we've all committed more sins than we would ever know. Only when we turn to Christ, the one who fulfilled the law of God perfectly, the one who never made any mistakes, the one who died on the cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven for all of our mistakes. Only when we repent from our sins and trust in him to save us and commit our lives to following him through that act of faith, that's when we will become the spiritual children of Sarah and we will escape the spiritual bondage from Hagar. That is what the gospel is all about. And it comes through a personal acceptance of God's grace. Well, I want to finish today with a third element that we see here as we close. And it's simply a practical awareness of God's enemies. A practical awareness of God's enemies. You know, it's important that we get the gospel right, that we understand it. It's even more important that we accept God's grace as our salvation through trusting in Christ. But what is life going to be like after we become a Christian here in this world? Well, you know, even though we have a heavenly citizenship, we all still have an earthly address, don't we? We all still live here in this sinful and fallen world. And that creates a lot of problems for us as believers because once we are living among people who are not believers, they often will treat us in a scornful way. They will treat us as if we have something wrong with us, as we don't fit in, and they they will persecute us for our faith because our lifestyle should be directly opposed to their lifestyle as people who are living in the worldly culture. But there's times that we get tempted to want to quit when things get hard. When times get tough, we as Christians want to back down from our faith. And this could be what the Galatians may have been going through as the false teachers were among them. They were being persecuted because of their faith in Christ. They were not obeying as Jews. So some of the Galatians said, well, if, if we can just back down a little bit and maybe listen to the false teachers and get in with them some, then they'll leave us alone. But that is not what God has called us to do as believers. So how are we supposed to respond to persecution as believers? Well, look what Paul says here in verses 28 and 29. He says, now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. Speaking of the Galatians. But just as that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. Now, Paul is drawing them into a very important reality they need to understand. And he's going back to the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac to show us one more truth from those days. Back in Genesis chapter 21, there's a story about when Isaac was being weaned as a child. And in that culture, it was a very important day. It was a day to be celebrated when they were being weaned. And it says there that in Genesis 21, 9, but Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So in this very important event in the life of Isaac, the child of promise, Sarah looks over at at Ishmael, who is many years older, and he's laughing and he's mocking at little Isaac as he's having this important day. Perhaps he's jealous or he doesn't like the fact that, that it's not his full brother. Who knows? But Sarah notices it. And Paul says in a way that it is persecution given from Ishmael to Isaac, that Isaac is being persecuted. And Paul interprets this event as an example 
of what happens between believers and unbelievers in the world, between those who are living according to the Spirit and those who are living according to the flesh. He says, just like Ishmael persecuted Isaac, so the lost world, those who are living apart from God, will persecute those who are in the family of God. And they will mock us and they will persecute us and try to harm us in many ways. It's Satan's way of making life on earth difficult for the people of God. Did you know that as believers today that it should be a normal thing for us to be persecuted? That if we're not being persecuted, it may communicate that something is wrong with our spiritual lives? You say, well, why is that the case? Well, the Bible teaches that we as believers are supposed to live so countercultural according to the way that Christ taught us, so different from the world that the world will reject us according to how we live. And it's a good thing. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Why is it a blessing to be persecuted? Because it shows that you are living under God's grace in a way that obeys Christ. It shows that you have it, that you are willing to suffer for the name of Jesus only by because you've been born again in him and living according to the truth. That's why it's good to be persecuted. Jesus himself said in John chapter 15, verse 20, Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Jesus said, just like they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you all the way into the end of your life. Paul says in 2 Timothy three twelve, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So if you're living your life for Christ, you will be persecuted in some degree. But the question is, how do we as believers respond to this persecution? Well, notice what Paul says in verse 30. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Paul is looking back to the events that happened right after Ishmael persecuted Isaac. Sarah, like any protective mother, was so upset at her son being persecuted against that she told Hagar and Ishmael to hit the road. She told them to leave the camp and to never come back. She cast them out from her presence. And Paul is saying that in the end, even though it seems like the persecutors are gaining ground today, don't give in to them because in the end, God is going to cast them out of the earth into outer darkness. It's strange how... Jesus uses in Matthew twenty-two thirteen 13, the, the phrase cast out into outer darkness. And this is very similar to the phrase that Sarah uses when it comes to Ishmael and Hagar being cast out away from them. It's showing us the reality that we need to be strong in our faith and not give in to the persecutors. Because if we side with them, the end is not going to be good. The end is not going to be good. We need to remain faithful to Christ all the way until the end. God's going to clean up the world one day. All the persecutors, all the unbelievers, all the problem makers are going to be ridden from the earth and a new heaven and a new earth will be restored, which is where we will live forever. But until that point, we have a duty and an obligation to live for Christ in everyday terms. Even when things are hard, when people are persecuting us, when it's not popular to be a Christian, we are to remain true to the calling that God has given to us. There may be many times when you feel ashamed to be a Christian because of what others may think or you don't want to stand up for Christ because of what others may do. But that is not the will of God. God wants you to remain strong until the end. 
You know, just this past week, I began, I'm almost ashamed to say this, I began training for a 28-mile bicycle ride that's going to be in less than two weeks. So I got off to a little late start, but I have rode in the past. It's been a few years ago, but I've rode in the past, and I'm not too out of shape to where I can get back into it. But I can tell you yesterday, I, I did a 10-mile ride building up to this 28 miles that's going to be less than two weeks, and, and it was hard. I'm not going to be, uh, I'm not going to lie to you. I was very sore. I was tired. As I was riding around the hills out where I live, there was a lot of times when it got tough that I was tempted to quit. I was tempted to stop or to quit or take a shortcut home and not finish. But I kept remembering the ride that's coming up, the 28 miles. And if I want to finish that ride with respect, I need to be able to do it all the way to the end. And I kept focusing on what the finish line was going to look like. And any time I was tired or weak, I just kept pushing ahead, thinking, you know what? If I'm ever going to get to that finish line, I've got to keep going. I've got to keep riding. And I made it all the way around to my goal the other day. And hopefully next week, next week I'll be able to go to even a farther goal. But you know, when we as Christians are going through this life, it's not easy. There's a lot of persecution. There's a lot of trials. There's a lot of things that happen that well, the devil will use to try to cause us to, to veer away from our spiritual calling. But if we keep our eyes focused on heaven, on the end, on the fact that we are going to have eternity with God and, and others who are hurting us along the way, unless they are saved by God's grace, they are going to be ridded of in judgment. Then that's what will help us motivate us to stay true all the way into the end, to keep our eyes on the finish line in heaven. So don't scale back your faith. Don't try to live a different life around those who may harm you. Realize that judgment is coming for them and that God will give you that crown of righteousness when you cross the finish line as one who enters through the grace of God according to your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you become a spiritual child of Sarah and have eternal life. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for another time that we could study your word together. Thank you, Lord, for the truth that we see throughout the Bible about the gospel. Lord, just the comfort and the peace of knowing that salvation is not about us, but it's totally about the work that you did through Christ on our behalf. And I pray today, Father, that for those who have experienced your grace, that have trusted in Christ to save them, Lord, that you would give us the strength to to continue living in a way that honors you, that we would not turn away to false teachers, we would not turn to our persecutors and give in, But, Lord, we would continue living in a powerful, spirit-filled way. But, Lord, for those who may not have come under your grace, those who have not trusted in Christ, even those who may be deceived today, Lord, that, that somehow their works are going to save them, I pray, Father, for your grace to come upon them in a powerful way. Lord, that you would show them the sin in their life, that you would show them their inability to accomplish your will as you've called us to. And, Lord, they may turn to Christ and be saved. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus and for giving us that salvation. It's in his name we pray. Amen.